0: All right. Uh, Our friend Marty is going to pray for us this morning.
1: God, our Father, uh, we've come together this morning to learn more about you. Um, We ask that you would uh, bless John David Guy and bless our conversation Help us to see more what's in the light. And help us not to love the shadow so much.
0: In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Can you tell us, Suzanne, briefly about the Hallmark movie? This is the second time I've heard about this, so maybe some of you saw it too.
1: Oh, did others see that Hallmark movie a couple weeks ago? (laughs) Far later. Richard did. What's
0: the name of it? Firelight. Firelight. Firelight On Hallmark Channel. And Um, uh, why was it significant to you?
1: Well, a young woman, uh, well, she was a girl probably, 17 or so. She was convicted of being part of a robbery uh, when her boyfriend uh, accused her, didn't know her. So she was caught with the goods or something. But anyway, she ended up in the reformatory for girls. Young women, and uh, the way, and she was shut inside herself. She'd had enough abuse, but the way out they promoted was to read the cave, to really read the cave, and understand what living in the shadows. And she, of course, embraced it. And uh, some of the girls could not, and the, the difference was night and day, as she.
0: So the therapy they actually used Socrates's cave as the therapeutic agent.
1: Well, it was just um, read it. Read yeah, read it. And read we'll it. talk about it. And, and it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yes, there was some therapy involved, but it was the act of the girls passing it on to another.
0: Yes. That's so cool. Um, really cool. It's amazing to me how the power of worldviews and ideas endure down through the ages. Uh, did any of you read Tom Wolfe's book, A Man in Full? Ah! There is a book built on the philosopher Epictetus, who was a Stoic. And uh, Wolf uh, describes this, <clears throat> there's two storylines. One is a man in full, he's got everything that this world can offer. And he's an a, a Atlanta, a real estate power person. And that's one story. The other story is this young man who's coming up from a very hard-scrabble existence gets into some difficulty trying to make it in life, gets thrown into jail, and there he gets introduced to a novel a book by Epictetus, the ancient Stoic philosopher. He reads it, he embraces it, and then Wolf uh, traces out these two storylines. And it was on the New York bestseller list for long time, and I just found that entrancing that a philosopher from pre Christian era could have so much muscle or power that it could sustain that view could sustain sustain a whole novel and it was very well received so it 's amazing how these ideas exist. Well, uh, here we are today uh, uh, i 'm going to give you a, a brief uh, synthesis of the course so far. Actually, I'm going to even show you how the course is going to end so you can start putting together all these ideas. But the first thing I want us to do is look at this passage from the book of Romans, please, and get a couple of readings because this is sort of the uh, core text that this whole course is built on. And obviously, uh, as I've told you before, uh, Pastor Dave wanted the implications of the resurrection to be clearly traced out and shown before you, so uh, I'm trying to do that under the rubric of this notion that's contained in 520 and we need a couple of readings. I'd like to have a, a old school version and uh, then maybe a couple modern ones. so who's got uh, something <laughs> not only is old, it looks old. <laughs> 520, Romans.
1: Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more
0: abound. Okay, grace did much more abound. He's making a comparative statement. Uh, what is he comparing? Sin and grace. Sin and grace. and uh, he's tracing out the history of the human race and uh, descending from our original parents, sin abounded. That's a general rubric that you could say about the history of the human race, but he compares that with the era of grace and he makes a comparative statement. And he said, uh, grace for that comes through Christ much more abounds, it's greater than the consequences or sin that has been brought into the world. This is an astonishing statement. Now, who's got a modern translation? Oh, brilliant. That's awesome. Um,
1: Philip's translation. Now, we find that the law keeps slipping into the picture to point the vast extent of sin. Yet, though sin is shown to be wide and deep, Thank God his grace is wider and deeper still.
0: Caught the uh, spirit of the text perfectly. God's grace is wider and deeper still. Okay, Um, that sounds pretty good right there. Uh, It literally in Greek is a composite word, and the first part of it is where we get hyper. So when we talk about kids that are hyper, uh, what are we referring to? Too much and beyond, you know, out of control. Uh, I, don't, I don't think Paul means to suggest that God's grace is out of control. He's comparing the hyper, the beyond, is comparing the consequences of sin with the consequences of grace. And the point is very simple and direct. Grace is more powerful and abounds and is greater than all of the sin that has been brought into the world from the beginning of time until the end of time, God's grace in Christ is greater than that. Now, does that, is that feel right to you in your <clears throat> lived experience? Does it feel like God's grace is far abounding the sin that's in the world? Or does it seem like sin is more prominent?
2: Sin is, more pro- Sin is more prominent,
0: but if you think about people that
2: are just awful who suddenly see the
0: light and become uh, real Christians, I mean, that happens. Yes, so it does. I, I, that's impressive. Well, I can't think of his name right now, but the guy that uh, wrote The Amazing Grace and that tra- slave trader, I mean, John he was Newton. about as evil as you could get. Newton. Uh, well, yes, also, and Chuck Colson just passed away uh, recently, right? And uh, he, he was, uh, he was uh, Richard Nixon's uh, uh, chief attorney, his personal attorney. Uh, he wasn't an attorney general, but he was Nixon's guy, attorney guy, and... Colson was on record as having said that if my president told me to do something and my grandmother stood in the way to do it, I would easily trample my grandmother to do whatever my president told me to do. Uh, Colson was a stone-cold marine, you know? And he was all government, Nixon, do whatever my country tells me to do, and wound up doing a lot of stuff that by his own admission was illegal, and then in the process of being caught and sentenced, he read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity and when he got to the section on pride, the chapter on pride boom, the Holy Spirit just blew open his head and he saw himself and he became a Christian and of course at that time because of the you remember this well, the uh, anti-Nixon the hatred, the vituperation, that American population poured out on those guys was just awful. And then here's Colson uh, t- t- declaring to the world, I've been uh, born a second time, I'm in Christ. And the initial reaction was what? Oh, this is the conversion. <laughs> conversion. the ultimate slick, uh, well, what did they used to call uh, uh, Richard Nixon? What was the? Tricky dick. Tricky dick. It was another trick. And... <laughs> And then it turned out, well, that was in, uh, I think, 76, and then he lived for the next quarter of a century as a staunch, uh, ultimate Christian who revolutionized the ministry of jail, jail ministry in the United States of America. It's outstanding. So he'd be a 20... 20th century person that we could point to and say but how about the how about the rest of you you can find examples in which it seems like this works out but he's making a bigger claim he's saying that in the world at large god's grace is way more powerful and has overcome and is beyond the consequences of sin how does it how does it yes sir it's implied yes it's, um, and we, we could go with your flow and try to define grace here for a minute if you want when Paul is using this term grace and is it is attached to Christ what does he mean and it does have the sense of forgiveness that's part of it You're, uh, in the grace of Christ through his death on the cross our sins are nailed to his cross they're taken from us and put on him on the cross. They're removed from us. That's part of God's grace. I
1: had a kid in a Sunday school class one time that described it this way mercy was not getting the punishment you deserved, and grace was getting the prize you didn't deserve.
0: Oh, okay. They turned it positive. Okay, mercy, you don't get punished. Grace, you actually get rewarded for something, for something you don't deserve. Very nice. Anybody else? Grace? Grace? (laughs) I'm sure you've all heard the acronym that's been tossed around and passed down through the centuries since English has been spoken. God's riches at Christ's expense. You not heard that? See, some of these old things are helpful to have in your back pocket. God's riches at Christ's expense. You get... uh, Everything that God can give to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 1.3. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings. Nothing has been excluded. It's all been given to us in Christ. There's nothing more God can give. It's an absolute lavish outpouring of the heart and love and grace of God. Yes. To, you, to go back to your question
1: about how, it, how I perceive it in the world. On an individual basis, I think that's true, but when you look at the world,
0: the world God, at large, that's what I see want.
2: More sin than grace.
0: That's what I want you to respond, to talk to me about. Because he's, he's making, not, he's not saying this is applicable merely to individuals. He's saying, that in the world in large, which is what we're trying to do in this course, is put together how God's been working in the world down through the centuries. He's saying God's grace triumphs and is more powerful than the law of sin. Now, somebody else. Yes. Well, he's, he's saying,
2: is he not, that it is the power of grace that is stronger than the consequences of
0: sin. Yes.
2: It isn't that, that sin is eliminated.
0: No. Right. Well, he says, uh, I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched right. person that I am. How do I do what I know I yes. Be doing? And right, 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 I mean, right.
2: I can't do the right. Thing, so right.
0: Yes, uh, and then there's the forensic part, the judicial part, the fact that we get justified by faith and God declares us righteous. Then there's the other component of the Christian life, which is the progressive realization of the holiness that you have as a result of being united with Christ. That's sanctification. And he's claiming that Christ's grace is Stronger than sin inside of us too because you know, you alluded to Romans 7 when he describes this is the way I am when I'm caught in sin or when I'm letting sin reign inside of me. I see another law at work in the members of my body. It's waging war against the law of my mind. It's making me a captive or a prisoner of the law of sin which is in me. But then later on he says who, who will deliver me from the body of this death and he answers the question I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on to say that it is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that has set me free from the law of sin and death. And he then expounds on how a Christian in the realm of sanctification can actually live above sin. And, uh, you know, then Christians argue about how far can you live above it and can you ever be completely free and total and absolute sanctification and blah, blah, blah. We don't need to argue about that. He simply says it's not just forensically or legally that the righteousness of Christ is given to us. It, Christ is actually given to us in a living sense, and we become like Him progressively over time. Now, yes, John?
2: Is it
0: fair for, for me to presume to call Christ a heretic? Here's what I mean. <laughs> no, it's not, but go ahead. <laughs> That's a nice little match on a pile of gas. That'll set something up. <laughs> like God, uh, he says that that's the way it's going to be. You can be a bastard for 99 years and ask for forgiveness, and you're let in just like the John Davids of the world and so forth. Uh, no, I'm the actually the other guy, but I don't that's don't worry okay. About that. I mean, that's God's, God's idea. That's His way of doing things. Let Him do it. Okay, so grace is okay with you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thesis, the thesis is, is that this grace has been released first and foremost in the event of Christ dying on the cross. It's a historical fact. It's changed everything. And then those of us who are living on this side of the cross, um, we can allow the living Christ to live in and through us. And this is the whole thesis of the New Testament, that he's actually alive inside of Christians. And that inside of Christians, he's going to do inside of us similarly as he did when he was here in his first body. So, yes, we would become bearers of this kind of, if you want to call it heretical. It's heretical to the way the world does business. Because, um, as I'm going to show you in a minute, we're going to talk about causality. Causality. And I'd like to know what you know about causality in the realm of physics, medicine, law. We have some doctors, we have some lawyers. And then I want to talk about this little trickster, post hoc ergo proctor hoc. Does anyone know what that means? (laughs) It does sound like a disease. And it actually kind of is. It's a mental disease. (laughs) Okay, so look, this is how the course is set up. Um, if you look at Acts seventeen twenty six, you see, uh, I have come over the years to think that Acts seventeen, Paul's message to the Athenians, is truly a model that we should master of communication with people in the world, and it also gives you a breath of theology that is so needed in our culture, in our world today, in the church because we have, we, we're actually teaching opposite of what Paul taught in Acts 17. We're implying things that he never implied. We're attitudinizing, which is basically a real wor- world word invented by Samuel Johnson, the guy who wrote the first Ameri- uh, English dictionary. Do you know him? And he used to tell uh, uh, Boswell, don't attitudinize, <laughs> which he meant uh, putting on errors and posturing and whatever. Uh, There's no, the way Christians attitudinize towards the world today is absent in Acts 17. It's amazing. So what does it tell us in Acts 17? Why are humans here? Why did God make us? Why are each one of us here on earth? What does it say? Somebody read it. 1726 acts from 17 okay. just
1: 17
0: yeah you know you have to be talented to teach at this church i'm telling you
1: <laughs> i can read loud i'm a teacher From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places
2: where they should live.
1: God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us.
0: Okay, so why were humans made? to search for God to gr- and grope that's the greek word to grope after god to seek after god and with a vain is it futile the seeking this groping does he say it's futile it's like it's, uh, no, it's possible. It's positive. He, he's saying, and he's not talking to Christians here. He's talking about everybody that's ever lived. God made humans to live on the face of the earth, to seek after God, to search for him, to grope after him, if perhaps they may find him, find God, and he says it's possible that people could find God. That's an amazing attitude to have that you're honoring all of the people that are searching now you might not agree with all of them in the ways they did it but they were searching for God and Paul acknowledges that now of course when you get to the heart of the course I introduced you last week to this notion from C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien that myth became fact and when did myth become fact what did they mean by that myth became fact because this they regarded this whole period this was the era of myth of religion of stuff people created to explain reality uh, the Aleusian cave or the Ellucian mysteries and the Socratic cave are two primal western illustrations of this groping and seeking and it's very high stuff yeah Suzanne this is The myth became fact is the incarnation. The incarnation. And and that implies everything. Like German theologians would call this the Christ event. It's not just, it's everything that the incarnation implies. God becoming a human, God and this God-man taking the sins of the world unto himself this God-man rising from the dead in victory over sin and death, this God-man announcing because he has authority, because he's conquered death, that we are now in the age of grace. The whole shebang is implied in this myth became fact because myth became fact. Well, what was the myth of the Eleusians? What what was their... uh, Demeter and, and Persephone and the little grain and the planting and the dying and the releasing and the harvesting I mean, and then when Jesus comes and is actually here talking to these Greeks he says that's me I'm the grain I'm going to fall in the ground and I'm going to bring forth a harvest and if you follow me and you fall into the ground and release your DNA you release yourself to me I will make you part of this cosmic harvest so for Tolkien and Lewis it's like Everything that the world has been groping for and seeking after and longing for and creating myths about at a certain point in time actually came and fulfilled the longings of the human search. That's how important this is. So this doesn't have importance just for Christians. It has importance for everybody that lives. It's what God has done in this world, the release of grace. So (coughs) I have shown you that people are searching these are examples of it myth became fact and then at the end of the course where I'm leading is this phenomenon that's going on in the year 2012 with regard to the planet Venus now I'm going to take five minutes and talk about this and then we'll move on because we're really going ahead of time and you're going to see how this ties together but could you find uh, uh, 22-28 in the book of Revelation and um, this this is kind of an advanced homework assignment for you to be working on now for the next couple of weeks Uh, I'm going to show you a couple of, I'm going to show you one text today because that's all you need 2228.
2: Uh, there is no 2228. I can't
0: get this separated, John. <laughs> uh, I, I actually need a text here. Um, I'm sorry, 2216. Sorry. It's 228, is the other one. That's why I got confused. 2216. Hold on one second. Let's read it. And then, what does it say? Who will who, read it? Go for it. I am the bright morning star. What's the bright morning star? Venus. Venus. So Jesus said, I am Venus. That's what he meant. Now, what are the other I am statements that you can think of that Jesus uses in the Bible? The way, the truth, the I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the Son of God. The son of God. I am the Good Shepherd. I am the vine, and you are the branches. I am... John set his whole gospel up on the I am sayings of Christ. I am the bread. I am the resurrection. I am the door. I am the light. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. Over and over. And it climaxes in John 8 when he says, when they say to him, uh, Abraham, uh, you know, was they're contesting about Jesus' claim that Abraham saw his day. And he says, you're not even 50. How could Abraham have seen your day? And the master says, before Abraham was, I am. am." That's heresy. Now he's claiming to be the great I am, which is God's way of talking to Moses in Exodus 3. Who shall I say sent me? (laughs) You just tell him the I am sent you, and they'll, they'll, they'll hear that. So Jesus is now claiming to be the I am. Well, these I am sayings are very prominent in the Bible. So now, but have you ever heard a sermon, ever, a teaching ever on I am Venus? Why? Yeah, wow, it's female stuff and also mythic stuff. Aha, but what do we find out about God and Jesus? Are they against the myths? Uh, In fact, Tolkien said they're basically like prisms and the light of God, the prisms are the minds of humans, the light of God shines into our minds and we produce myths to try to explain reality and there's two ways that young uh, people have looked at it some Christians have said this is all trash and should all be consigned to the fires like they did to the library at Alexandria not that Christians did that but you know let's just burn it all up and and go forward and forget all of this Paul Lewis Tolkien and other people say oh No, you don't want to forget about this stuff. You want to realize that this is how God's been working in and through human beings to fulfill their deepest longings. It's a very positive way of looking at it. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, you can go in, and talk. We could go to the mall. Hey, buddy, did anybody go to the mall? Are you serious? I, I, that's how I go to the mall. I always go to the mall that way. <laughs> yes, you could. We can have a, t- let's have a mall experience. <laughs> Let's go to the mall together. I'll show you how to do it as a uh, cosmic Christian. (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, I mean, people, uh, if you went to the mall today and interviewed 100 people, you'd find X amount of people that would say, oh, Christianity, that's just like another myth. It's just something that people believe. It it makes sense of of life for them. But it's not true. They would be like C.S. Lewis who told Tolkien, yeah, the myths are beautiful, but they're lies breathed through silver. That's what Lewis told Tolkien. They're lies. They're pretty lies. And Tolkien said, no, they're not lies. And he turned it on its head and said, these are the glimmers of God's light being Reflected and refracted through the human mind and if you dig through them you find the kernel the essence the quiddity of them and then when you find the quiddity of them and take them over here to Jesus you, you see what? They fit. So it, there's some people have even gone so far as to say that all of this stuff is essentially for the Gentiles what the Older Testament was for the Jews. Think about that. What was the Older Testament dropped into the Jewish people? Uh, By the way, look. Look at the dates here. The law was given to the Jews in around 1445 B.C.E. The Eleusian Mysteries started in 1600 B.C.E so when Moses 150 years before Moses was receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai the Greeks were engaging in their mysteries but when you unpack the essence of the Older Testament and unpack the essence of the Eleusinian mysteries you get the same ultimate answer they are all pointing to Christ if you know how to have the eyes to look for them yes Suzanne Uh huh. Of course he did. Of course he did. And we shouldn't be scared of that. No, Acts 7 tells us that Moses was the most learned person in the Egyptian court. And that would make sense. He was a grand prince of Egypt, he would have had access. Egypt was the intellectual epicenter of the world then. He would have had access to all of the myths. He would have had access to Hammurabi's Code, which was published around 2100 B.C. Now, here's a frightening thing for some people. They take Hammurabi's Code, and they lay it next to the, to the Mosaic Code, and they say, "Oh, Hammurabi has got the same stuff that Moses does, or actually, we should say it this way. Moses has got the same stuff that Hammurabi does, and so I wonder if uh, Moses plagiarized a copyright a copyright suit on that. I think there is from the ancient world. And my response is, of course he plagiarized. No, he absorbed, Moses did, all of this stuff. He was taught it, and then in his encounter with God, the, the extraneous stuff was ferreted out. The stuff that was good was retained and then woven together in a Jewish context, especially for the Jewish people. Yeah. Isn't that a cool way of looking at things? Now God's, God's actually working with the peoples of the world and loving them while they seek for God. God's not some moral monster that has consigned the vast portions of humanity into the flames and saved a, 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 a little group of ragtag Jews. No. That's not the way it is. Yeah. Even our form of comes from the we have so much stuff that we have brought from these peoples. It's amazing. And we now have, what we've done is take all these rich treasures and they've been incorporated in many ways into the Christian faith. And, when, and you, if you read atheistic literature or agnostic literature, they make a huge deal out of this. Look at how much Christianity borrowed. Look at all this stuff that was prior to Christianity. This is obviously just a, a rehash done by a bunch of uh, first century Jewish people. Really? Well, that's, you can look at it that way. And if that's true, then what is true for us here today? If we're reading a bunch of rehashed myths done by a bunch of Jews in the first century surrounding a person named Yeshua, then what's true for us? We're rehashing them, them and we're deep into shadows. We're basically in a cult, and we're breathing lies. We're believing lies breathed through silver. I mean, it's pretty daunting. Or flip it, and we've been blessed to have the gift given to us of myth become fact and we now have the ultimate source of the light given to us not because we're cooler than them but because of grace and now instead of discrediting all of these people in their searching we should be honoring them as we take forward the best of what they gave to us in Christ well now we get to the end of the course and Jesus says he's Venus now what's unique about 2012 anyone know It is not going to be until 2117 which would mean most of us will be uh, (laughs) in the presence of the Lord by that time it will not be until 2117 that Venus is as bright again as she is this year on uh, June 5th she's going to hit 4.9 star magnitude on July 5th she's going to configure with uh, the moon in a spectacular display uh, on June 5th she'll be so bright she'll be seen across the entire North American continent at the same time um, it's going to be a stunning rest of the year for Venus now uh, if does, is God sovereign uh, remember he said God determined the times and the places where all humans would live uh, does God ever use the stars in the heavens to, in the Bible ever to convey uh, veridical accurate information to humans When when does God do that? (laughs) The star of Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Um, And and so I'm going to ask you to ponder this. I don't accept it yet. But I'm suggesting to you that the sovereign God has arranged things as they are so that this year in particular will have a message for human beings who know how to look for it. Jesus said he's Venus. This is the year of Venus. Jesus is sending us a message. I believe he's sending us a message in the stars now the same way that some of these myths in the past functioned all we need is some people who understand what God's doing and point people to that end for, for example I know you'll think I'm crazy but we are having a huge Venus party at Congress Lake this summer comprised of uh, people from Brookside and Congress Lake and we're going out on the lake in boats where we will have our study anybody that would like to come you're welcome uh, nothing bad will happen. We'll just go out onto the lake and we will study the Venus literature while we look at her.
2: got to try some nets over. on the left, the the right. Oh. talking about
0: the lions. I mean, is that why they quit making the calendar? They knew the end was coming? Well, <laughs> the Mayans would be an example of people that took seriously the study of astrology and astronomy and knew that they could read and understand what the stars were telling them to a certain extent. Now, some of their worldview stuff, I don't know if it's true, (coughs) but it was a a functional calendar, and that's pretty cool. I I bet none of us could sit down and make a calendar that works as well as that out of our head. <laughs> so <coughs> that's what it was. All right, now let's talk about causality briefly. Uh, give me a, a law in physics that shows, you know, that ex- it explains. For every action, there is an, an equal opposite reaction. It's the first law of physics. It's causality. Stuff always, something always causes something else to move. Uh, causality in medicine. You, when you can say this caused that. When you put an egg <laughs> 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 okay, okay, we now know that. By the way, I mean, like in the Middle Ages, people thought that they believed in this theory called the homunculus. And they thought uh, a homunculus is a little tiny person, a little tiny human. And they thought these little humans lived inside of the male. And then when uh, uh, the of canu- canuvial bliss came up what they thought happened was that the male shot these little humans into the female and that's how babies came to be that was called the homunculus theory well now we found out what uh, well I, no we found out reality is a lot more complicated 23 23 makes 46 that's how humans come to be uh, causality in law <laughs>
2: I'll go <to>
0: George. George. <laughs> George, give me an example of causality in law. Something you say this can be proven to have caused that. Isn't that what law does? I mean, isn't that what you do a lot of times in law cases? You're trying to prove that one thing caused another. Yes, that's correct. It's a legal presentation that says, you want to explain this set of facts over here? Look over here and you'll see why those things happened. Right? Isn't that what lawyers do? It's all a search for the truth. Uh, yes, of course. We want to cause the. We want to find the true reasons, and then of course the defense attorney is going to say, "No, um, actually, if you look at those facts more carefully, if you look at the results over here, you'll see that it could not have been the cause." <laughs> in fact, what you're doing is engaging in post hoc, ergo proctor hoc. After this, therefore, because of this it's one of the classic logical fallacies of all time you can't always do that you can't always look at something that happens here and draw a straight line of causality back over here when you misinfer or you do it in a way that's not truthful that's called you've engaged in post hoc ergo proctor hoc. you've made a false inference and isn't that what you do as a judge in some cases you have to ferret out the post hoc ergo proctor hocks (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome I'll be back with my decision in a second (laughs) Uh a syllogism is a way to escape post hoc ergo proctor hoc major premise, minor uh, premise, conclusion ergo this is a correct conclusion you should look at it and it should be self evident but if it's not then you engaged in post hoc ergo proctor hoc alright now we see that physics, medicine, law, everything in life. If your car goes, you got your dry, car today and start it up and it doesn't start, then you're going to say what? Wrong Something's wrong with my car. Something cause, is causing my car not to start. And that happens to mine on, on occasion because when they put the new battery in, they didn't, somebody messed up and didn't put a second nut on the terminal and so it kind of gets loose sometimes so on occasion I'll start my car and it won't start because the nut has worked loose so I gotta jump out get my wrench out tighten the thing back up and eventually get a new nut that causes this don't make any jokes on that either (laughs) now what's grace this is the law this is the world of causality what what's different about grace It, it breaks the law is there? can you think of a piece of literature in which the tension between the law or the causality of things that this leads to that that there are consequences for everything and that they have to be taken seriously because if you don 't that 's denying reality, it is not living according to the way things are. Can you think of a character in literature that exemplifies that to the max? and then another character that's pitted against that character to show the uh, reality of grace. Can you think of any classic piece of literature that does this? Okay. There's one, there's one where, where both sides are displayed. Uh, I think it's Christmas Carol. Okay, great. Scrooge. Scrooge. Brilliant. brilliant. Awesome. And then he's met with grace of a life change. Okay, great. That's, that's a good one, yes. John?
2: broke the law. I don't care what your
0: reasons were. Here are the consequences. Great. And Antigone says, I couldn't care less what the law is. I'm going to do what's right. And it ends. Awesome, great. Uh, how about another one that's more recent? That's ancient. Recent times, fairly recent, modern. Les Miserables. Oh, you've got to get the new movie. Have you seen the new movie with um, uh, Liam Neeson and... Um, who's the... Uh, Uma Thurman. That's worth watching the movie in itself. I guess that wasn't very funny. People didn't get Les Miserables and watch it because who's Inspector Javette this is his thing law 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 and Jean is a criminal and he deserves to be punished for what he's done the priest shows grace to Jean Valjean changes his life Inspector Javette can't let it go do you know the story well enough that I can finish it and, and so it doesn't ruin it for you? What does Jivet have to do at the end when he realizes that it's futile to try to continue this persecution of Jean Valjean? What, what, what does he do in the Passing end? The river, he, kill he kills himself. Why? Well, because it was his responsibility to bring in Jean Valjean. because the wages of sin is death. Somebody's got to die for these crimes. And if I can, he couldn't bring himself any longer to, to do it to Jean Valjean because Jean Valjean showed him grace. Because Jean Valjean had a gun up to his head at a certain point and was told by the revolutionaries, blow this scum away. And what does Jean do? <coughs> Take off. And he lets him go. So at the end of the, at the, end of the book, Jean, uh, Inspector Givet says, you know, I can't blow this guy away. He set me free. And it sets off this cognitive dissonance in him that's basically driving him crazy. And the only way that he can shut his mind down in the end because he can't understand grace is what? He puts the cuffs on himself, locks them, and falls into the river, kills himself. Justice was served in his mind. Really? And Of course, then Jean Valjean walks away. You've got to get the movie because it's so cool because he walks down the boulevard and all the birds fly up and he's free. Ah, it's so cool. Um, this is our problem. We live in a world that has trained us to view everything from the causality mode and then all of a sudden God drops into our nice little prim Universe and says what <laughs> that that is no longer relevant information for you. I mean, you can it's low level, it's it's basic, but grace is now what hyperabounding. Hype, hyperabonding. You are now in a new dimension, Christians. You are in a new u- moral universe. You are in the universe of grace. Causality is no longer relevant to you. When you think about that?
2: Well, it is because we still are under the law. And if we do something wrong, we get punished.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, it still exists. I mean, causality still exists. but God's telling you what? On the greater scale, it isn't something that, well, for example, it was once the uh, law of our land that African people were not human. Dred Scott case, 1857. You're not really human. You're three-fifths of a human. Supreme Court of the United States ruled that. That was the law of our land. And the people in Oberlin, Ohio, said what? I don't care what your law says. We're going to do what's right, and that is a manifestly unjust and unfair law. It contradicts the uh, foundational arguments and uh, documents of the United States of America. It's a complete contradiction to what we say we believe. We hold these truths to be self-evident. What? That all, that all humans, well, you've got to amend it because Tom was living in a different time and place. He said all men, but we know he meant, <laughs> at least we think he meant. No, actually he meant all white boys are created equal chicas and people of color are three three yeah whatever yeah three-fifths but they wouldn't want to put that on there so he took white out and got rid of that and said this grand and glorious thing all humans are created equal and then when it got down to it making a decision about what about these humans that we imported from Africa we said what? Well, we can't make them be humans because then they'll vote. And then if they vote, then what? (laughs) We'll lose our power. So the easiest solution to this whole thing is just declare them to be not human. Therefore, then they can't vote. Simple. Is that just? It's manifestly unjust. So some people said... Uh, We're not keeping that law. We're going to try to change it, but in the meantime, we're not going to obey it. We're going to disobey it because it's more unjust to obey it than it is to disobey it. Wow. Yes, sir. yes they did it was blatantly christocentric they said they looked at galatians 3 that it said in christ jesus there is neither Jew nor gentile slave or free male nor female but you're all one in christ jesus and they said okay we're in the age of grace if that's true if we're all one in christ then we're going to start living that way that means then we're going to make any distinctions any longer between somebody's ethnicity or gender and they actually began to live that way and they were hated yeah So, these are just, you know, little examples. So, um, this is an overview of the course today. I thought we had to do this so that we could really synthesize everything. Uh, You have an assignment for this week, which is to read this little, um, this is an adaptation that I did of Romans 5. What I try to do is weave Mary into it and Mary and Eve also into it and uh, so if you would continue reading in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 as your assignment said and read this along with it next week when we get together I want to show you this reality now of the race of Adam and the race of Christ there are two human races now in existence one is descended from Adam only the other is descended from Adam and then incorporated into Christ there are two human races right now on earth and Paul in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 traces out the implications of those comparisons and asks us to say which race am I part of am I part of the Adamic race or am I part of the Christian race Some of you are looking at me very oddly, but if you read Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see that he makes this case. You can't help being part of the Adamic race because as a human you were born that way, but you can choose to join the Christian race with Christ as its head. And that's what, of course, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 are designed to do, is to motivate you to join the second raise. So when we get together next time, that's what we will do. So have a great day, great service, great weekend. You want to say one more thing? Yes.